I'm Jeff Cohen. Rabbi Mayor Goldberg has spent nearly 20 years working with Jewish college students with the goal of maximizing every Jewish student's spiritual potential. The organization he founded, Mayor Jewish Experience, helps students connect with their roots and ignite their Jewish souls. He's here today to both share his own story and that of the countless people he's helped along the way. Rabbi Goldberg, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. So it's a pleasure to have you, and there's a lot that I want to ask about your organization and the care of work that you do. But as with all of our guests, we like to get to know the person behind the organization first. So tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised. So I grew up in Farakaway, New York, next to the five towns. It was a great place to grow up. I uh, had grandparents who went to Shari Tefillah, the old Shari Tefillah, and the old White Shul which were very much rooted at the time in the non-Orthodox world. My parents were, I guess, uh, more, you could say, black hat, and more rooted in the yeshiva world. And so I was raised sort of in both worlds. My, my family was very much the, uh, like a typical uh, black hat yeshiva family, but my grandparents were very much non-Orthodox. And, and so I kind of was born and raised in both of those worlds. So it's so interesting to me as someone who was raised secular, when I tell people I know two worlds, I'm talking about secular and religious, you're talking about modern Orthodox and black hat is the two worlds. Right, right. So that's an interesting distinction. Given what you do now in the world of Kirov, did you have secular friends growing up? Were you exposed to that world as well? So I didn't have secular friends growing up, but my grandfather was sort of a, a low-key legend of the, of the Jewish world in the sense that he created an entire industry, a speakers agency called the Harry Walker Speakers Agency. His name was Harry Walker. He was born in Poland named Herzlik Volkovich. He came over as a four-year-old on a boat, you know, came on Thanksgiving, arrived in Ellis Island, 1920. He, he went to Yeshiva University. Uh, he eventually created an entire industry of speakers that he would sort of engage famous people and contract with them and be their agent and have them speak at various functions. He would arrange those talks and he was able to uh, create an entire industry. So I was very aware of all these different people who were in the secular world who were very famous. I've interviewed musicians and comedians and people who, who work in all different fields where they knew at a young age that they had an interest in something or they recognized a special talent and it blossomed as they grew up. So given what you do now in the world of Kirov, was there any inkling when you were a young child that you had any kind of passion or interest in secular Jews and their journeys? So it's interesting. My grandmother used to always say that I'm going to be a rabbi when I grew up. That really wasn't who I was as a kid. Most of what I thought about as a child was sports. Very much a big uh, football fan. I have a special uh, passion and an unhealthy passion for the Miami Dolphins. And uh, I liked the, you know, I liked hockey and basketball and baseball, uh, New York teams. But um, for some reason, football was different. But uh, my family always had a lot of guests coming in. Uh, we had many Soviet Jews who would come off the plane and stay at our house for Shabbos. My father uh, went in 1982 to the Soviet Union to teach. He would connect with refuseniks all over, um, you know, different parts of the Soviet Union. So I always had an inkling and a connection to secular Jews, especially Soviet Jews, but really Jews of all stripes who would come through our house. When I interview someone who was raised secular and then becomes religious, there's usually a point in the story where they're questioning what role Judaism is meant to play in their life, and they wanted to take on a bigger role, so they start investing more and more in it. But you're someone who was born into it, 
Did you have moments as you were growing up where you're saying, why am I in this world? Why is this the way I'm being raised? Why is this the way our lifestyle is? Or did you just kind of take it for granted like it was just the world that you were in? So it's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of people that I grew up with uh, took it for granted. I really didn't, or I did really until I was like 13 or 14 or 15. My brother was someone who was raised also in the yeshiva world, but he kind of went on his own journey. Uh, He very much uh, uh, didn't really connect with the yeshiva world. And so he would ask a lot of questions. And whenever I would sort of like make, you know, definite statements about Judaism coming from a yeshiva perspective, he would always sort of, you know, question those statements. And it would always compel me to rethink what I was saying. It would also compel me to um, to look at things from a different perspective, not to judge other people. So in that sense, my brother really influenced me a lot because he really did take a different path. He actually ended up uh, going to Columbia University for grad school and worked in my grandfather's company for, for a long time. And that sort of challenged me a little bit. I also, I, I, I remember distinctly, and I was in Scranton Yeshiva at age 15, I had a very distinct conversation with a friend of mine whose father was like a big Rosh Yeshiva, and um, I, 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 I remember just sort of, I was like standing like right next to the bima in, in the shul in, in, in the Yeshiva, in Scranton Yeshiva, and I said, you know, how do you know that this is, the, that Judaism is true? How do you know? And he goes, well, I, I just know. And I'm like, well, no, but how do you know? And I'm like, that's not an answer. What do you mean you just know? And I think both people were right, because in Jewish belief, there's two ways to approach things. There's a more intellectual sort of like proof-based or, or philosophical-based idea of saying, okay, this is the way we can show, we can demonstrate that this is objectively true. There's another idea that's called das. Das means like an inner knowledge or an inner sense of something being true, not because I can prove it uh, externally like a mathematical proof or any or this philosophical proof. It's more like, you know, you know you love your mother, but you can't explain why you love your mother. You just know you love your mother, right? So I think that he was saying, I know it because it's very much of who I am, just like my, I love my mother. And I wasn't there at that point. I was like, wait a second, but how do you really know? So from that point on, when I was like 15, 16, I had this like inner turmoil, like, okay, I know there's evidence. I know like, I knew vaguely about Asia Torah, like they have evidence and I really got to figure this out. And I have to be able to demonstrate this to myself because otherwise I'm just not going to be satisfied. And it's interesting because many times over the last, you know, 20 years working with college students, students have asked me like, well, you know, like, how do you know this is true? Like, did, did God ever appear to you? And, you know, that's then they, they think that that's something that Jews like will we'll have like some sort of like, you know, epiphany or I really never had anything like that. And that's not really wasn't really the, ever the basis of my religion. You know, at a, at a young age, I was I was really like thinking and, and trying to demonstrate, you know, how do we know this is objectively true? And there was a book that my parents had bought from my brother, which he was not interested in, which I actually ended up reading, which had a very profound influence on me. It was written by Ben Sion Allswing, and it was called The Final Resolution. I don't believe it's in print, but I have two copies because it was so important to me. And it it presents a lot of evidence that Torah might be objectively true. And I say evidence, not proof, because, you know, evidence is different than proof, because I don't believe that things are 100 percent. But I think evidence points in a direction. And he also was able to demonstrate a lot of things that are written in the Torah and in Chazal, which you can show objectively came true, which, you know, made a very big impression on me. Sounds like you were building confidence in the journey that you're in. At the same time, you're in your teen years and you have family members telling you, oh, I could see you being a rabbi. You have a brother who's going into the family business. So where did you think you were going to end up as the college years approached? 
in the back of my mind, I always knew that I wanted to go into what we call in Lakewood, Clay Kodesh. Clay Kodesh means a job, you know, in Jewish education or the rabbinate or something. I knew because you only get one chance to live and make an impact in the world. And I knew that there was a great value in getting up every day. And I'm not minimizing what people do if they're businessmen or professionals. Those are important things. And they're supporting their families and giving tzedakah and making a kiddush Hashem in the world. But I always had a sense that if I get up every day and I could impact the world in a very practical way, doing mitzvahs and teaching Torah, that's a much more massive impact. And there's a greater sense of purpose. Every day I'm being involved in something that's going to have a massive, huge impact in, you know, in the Jewish world, which is really important. But on the other hand, I really wasn't holding anywhere Jewishly. I was a very mediocre uh, student on many levels. I never excelled at anything, really. I was always very much an average person. Nobody expected anything really to come of me. In fact, my Shiva in Scranton recently told a friend of mine, not in front of me, just, you know, as a side point, that he said, you know, I never really thought he would end up like this. <laughs> and that was sort of like, you know, how things were. And then I had a Rebbe named Rav Yaakov Fensterheim in 12th grade. He was a little extreme, but that's really what I needed as a 17-year-old. I needed passion. I needed fire. And he was able to evoke that out of us. He was such an incredible, passionate person that he created that fire within us. And there was a very definite shift at age 17 in 12th grade where I was like, okay, this is something that I can really connect to and learning something that I really appreciate. So what did you do from that point? Did you did you go to Israel? Did you go to Kola? Like, what did you do with that energy you were feeling for Judaism? So I stayed in Scranton Yeshiva for another two years. Pesach of my second year of post-high school base medrash, I was still struggling. It was like very much up and down. And uh, I was like, you know, I got to figure out what I'm going to do in my life. I'm going to Israel. If I'm successful there, then I'm going to stay in Kolel and continue my journey of learning. But if not, then I'm going to go to college like some of my friends were planning on doing and maybe go to law school or something like that, going to business. I actually had a number of friends who, who graduated law school. I think a third of my Scranton friends in my class ended up, you know, graduating law school. And my, my grandfather would have been only too happy to pay my way through college. He was not, he did not want me to, to stay in Yeshiva, though my parents very much wanted me become someone who stayed in yeshiva. But I went to Yagdel Torah, which at the time, now it's Yagdel Torah is considered a premier yeshiva. At that time, it was uh, it was not a premier yeshiva at all. In fact, it was considered a very low-level yeshiva. The joke is that then it was Yagdel, now it's Torah. But, any, <laughs> but anyway, you know, the, we, we, I went to Yagdel. It was very successful there. I had two fantastic rebbeim. And uh, I, from that point, I knew that this is something that I really wanted to do. And then I went to Lakewood Yeshiva in 1998. And I got married to my wife, Esty, my life's partner. That was in 1999. And since then, so I stayed in Kohl for about four and a half years. And after that, I jumped into, um, into Kirov, which is a whole other story. Right. So let's get into that part. You are trying to figure out what you want to do. And when I look at your bio, it looks like you go right from your studies to getting involved at Rutgers University. So was there a point as you were figuring things out that you said, I think this is what I want to do. I want to start this organization. Yeah, so it was, you know, you in life sometimes you see, you kind of don't realize that it at the time, but you see sort of God, you know, from from the you know hindsight being twenty twenty, you could kind of see God sort of leading you. But I didn't realize it at the time. When I was in Kolal, I I was good, I was good in learning, but I wouldn't say I was excellent at it, and I knew that I wasn't going to stay in there long term. So I. 
started to do a little bit of outreach. I went to Twin Rivers. I would learn with some some guys over there. I started going to Margate, New Jersey, and I was uh, doing a, a couple of classes in Margate. That's next to Atlantic City. And I had some success. And I started to get the sense that this is something that I could be really good at. I always had a knack of connecting to people. And uh, so what happened was I was able to, to really connect to regular people. But I was looking for something more, more long-term. And it took me about six months to a year to try to find a long-term connection, a long-term uh, a job. And I ended up connecting to Rabbi Avram Jacobowitz, who was head of Kirov organization called the JRC, Jewish Resource Center, in University of Michigan. And I almost got hired over there, but I didn't take the job because at the time the salary wasn't guaranteed. So my father told me it's not wise to take that job. But I said, you know what, I'm so impressed with what Rabbi Jacobowitz is doing in University of Michigan. I want to do that over here. So I joined a group of guys who were going out to college campuses and running something called the Maimonides Leaders Fellowship. And and I said, you know, I'm going to take it and start it at Rutgers University, which is perhaps the largest Jewish undergrad population in the country. And I was partnered at the time with Rabbi Yitzchak Feldheim. He would give the classes and I had to recruit and, and follow up with the students. So what do you think really got you interested in outreach? Because like the way you were describing it, you knew at some point you wanted to do something for the Jewish people, but you could have been a teacher. You could have become a pulpit rabbi. What was it about like outreach specifically? You said, maybe this is the, the lane I'm supposed to be in. So I had a group of friends growing up where, where they were like tough guys, and they were not particularly um, rooted in the yeshiva world, even though we, we were all in yeshiva together. But they were like people who were very broad-minded, and we, we, we were a little bit atypical in that sense. I was a very curious person. I was, you know, I kind of knew what was going on in the world. My grandparents had a TV in their house with full cable. So I was like, you know, I, whenever I get my hands on ESPN or whatever it was, or movies or whatever it was, I, I kind of knew what was going on. My brother had like a collection of cassette tapes of like Metallica and, and Guns N' Roses. And I made some good use of that. So, you know, I kind of knew what was going on in the world. So that was sort of like the, you know, on one hand pulling me to the secular world. But I also had my other side of me that I, I really wanted to, I aspired to be like my father, who was very much a big Tamachacham and a person who was very much rooted in Torah. And he was sort of pushing me in that way. And my Rebbeim were pushing me in that way. And, and deep down, that's really what I wanted. So I was sort of being pulled in both directions. So I figured that outreach is the type of thing that sort of combines all those things because it allows me to use my the side of me that's, you know, that likes sports and, and music and, and the outside world and really meld that into the world of Torah and Judaism and my experiences before where I was able to connect to, you know, other people and sort of bring it all together and use it as a vehicle towards really helping other Jews maximize their success in life and really maximize their spiritual potential. So now we're in the year, it's 2004, I think you said, when things started rolling at Rutgers, right? Yeah. So I go on to Rutgers and I'd never been on a college campus before. I really didn't. It was really a very foreign thing. You know, you, you sort of have these like visions of like, a, what is a college campus? And you're thinking about all the different, you know, movies you saw and, and images that are that are portrayed in popular media. And I'm like, OK, you know, I have my, my crazy friends, you know, who are not less wild than these people. I mean, I, it, it wasn't to the point where I was like intimidated or anything because I knew enough people from my yeshiva world who were nuts that like, OK, fine, no problem. Like, you know, these these guys are not that intimidating and people are friendly. People are nice. It's a little bit difficult to get your footing initially, but I was able to scrape together about 
nine students the first semester, and we started a program. And Rabbi Feldheim would give the classes. We'd bring in guest speakers. Rabbi Feldheim was like an unbelievable. He was funny, and he was sort of irreverent, and he was sort of everything that the students weren't getting in college. So the guys especially could appreciate him. The women were used to fight with him, which was fine. And that whole back and forth created this really fun dynamic on campus where, um, you know, people got you know into it and excited. I met a kid who had learned in the Torah links in East Brunswick through Rabbi Shlomo Landau. This kid was secular, but he was growing. And I started learning with him. And right away, he starts, you know, becoming really interested. So I felt like I'm able to connect with other Jews and they're interested and they're, they're growing. And we had a great time. I mean, I remember there was like a random Tuesday night. We were, you know, Rabbi Feldheim gave the class and there was great food and there was good conversation. And there was one girl who was like fighting with him the whole time. It was great. And then there were two guys. Uh, one was uh, Ellie and another guy was Dave. They were both from Cherry Hill and we just have a great time with them. So we go out to some, like, I don't know, some Dunkin' Donuts and they, you know, they order donuts and we got coffee and it's one, one in the morning. And we're just having a blast. And I'm like, you know what? This is really where I belong. So let's just go a little deeper on those early years. You said you had nine people to start. What exactly was like the program you did with the nine people? And and why did they come in the first place? Like, what were they looking for? What was their background that you got those early people into your program? Most of these kids were like either unaffiliated or they were like, uh, you know, had some background, but they're like curious about Judaism. But we offered them a stipend. We're like, okay, if you come to 10 classes and you do a couple of Shabbat tones and you do maybe a couple of Jewish um, events, then we'll give you uh, we'll give you a $400 stipend. That was sort of the whole premise. And the stipend is not there to bribe anybody. It's really just as an incentive to complete the entire thing as a unit because it was a, it, there was a real commitment. So they're sort of like curious, okay, there's a stipend, that's cool. And they're like, okay, you know, you know, I don't know what these classes are about. We'll just sort of sit through them. We don't know. We've never done a Shabbaton before. That's a little weird. I'm not going to lie, right? And, you know, they start and, and we do it. And we have these great Shabbatons. The food's great. The company's great. We have great conversation. The first Shabbaton, we go to, we go to Farakaway and uh, I go to the Safir family. We have a great time. We have Jeff Seidel bring a group from, you know, from Israel he has like a little reunion. So we have like 20 people there. We have a blast. The hosts in Farakway are amazing. Everybody's having a great time. Time sort of stands still for 25 hours. They have a great time. They never do that in college. They never get a time to just sort of like, you know, you know sort of black out the world and, and, and have great conversations and great food and really live in the moment. And, you know, and, and there's, you know, there's beer and there's great food and everybody's just having, everybody's having good conversations and they're connecting. And we're, we're up till two, three, four in the morning. And so they're really engaged and the classes are great. We're meeting great personalities. You know, Dr. Herman Presby speaking about science and Judaism, Ari Bergman speaking about, you know, the finance markets and Judaism, and they're meeting these great people. And so it's aside from the stipend, which they appreciate, that's not even what's driving them. It's sort of like the engagement of the speakers and the connections they're making. Got it. And so continuing on this theme of the early years, what are you viewing as success? Like you have these nine people and I'm guessing it starts to grow a little bit, you know, at the beginning. What to you is success? Is it that that they're coming? Is it that they're learning more? Like what tells you, oh, I think I'm on the right track with these people? 
So it was only nine the first semester. By the second semester, we grew it to about 30. Uh, but I see that they're engaged, and I see that they're growing, and I see that they're interested. So for me, success is never like one thing. You know, it's not just, you know, oh, a guy goes to yeshiva, that's success. Or a guy, you know, keeps Shabbos, that's success. Those are good indicators that, you know, they're really engaged and they're growing a lot. But it's not just that. If a guy is more interested in Judaism and he's now willing to engage in those conversations, that's a success. If a guy is, you know, might start growing in, in some small way, that's a success. So any way of growth to whatever that person's potential is, that's going to be considered success. The fact that they're now interested in Judaism, that it's actually a relevant conversation, is success. We were talking about 2004, so now you're you know, almost 20 years into this. What were some of the things you saw that were really working that helped the organization continue to grow? So the three basic principles of outreach and really connecting with Jews is Torah, Shabbos, and Chesed in connection with others. You know, I'm part of a bigger organization, which I became part of in 2005, 2006, called Ma'or. And it's based on a, a, an idea in Chazal that says that God says to the Jewish people, that God says to the Jewish people, I wish you just forget about me and just study Torah, because the light of the Torah will return them to good. So there's a principle in Judaism that Torah in and of itself, obviously the point of everything is to come to have a connection to God. But if that connection is severed, what you want to do is you want to engage in Torah study and the Torah study will rebuild the connection between us and God. So deep Torah study, as deep as a student can handle it and as deep as the the rabbi Rabbitson can convey it is crucial and essential. That's the Aleph. That's the first thing that you want to do is study Torah. The second thing that you want to do is give them a connection to Shabbos, because Shabbos is, is everything. I mean, Shabbos is, like the Chavetz Chaim says, it's the engagement ring between God and the Jewish people. It's, it shows that we're married and that we're exclusive. That's why a non-Jew, by the way, can do every mitzvah in the Torah, cannot study Torah Shabbat Peh, and cannot keep Shabbos. Those are the only two things that a non-Jew can't do. He can do everything else, because those things are the unique, intimate connection and bond between God and the Jewish people. So Shabbos is, the most, is, is so important. So if you can connect a Jew to Shabbos, in any way, on any level, even if it just means them making Kiddush, you know, or coming to a meal, even if they're not going to keep the rest of the Shabbos, that's fine. That's the first step in growth, and that's crucial and important. The final thing is that you have to have a connection to the individual. You have to, the, the individual has to know that you care about them, that you love them unconditionally, and irrespective of whether they're going to grow so that there is a bond, a love between that person and the Makarov and the person who's the rabbi or rabbison or whatever that figure is. And so with all the people that you've impacted in different ways, I'm wondering if you can share, I don't want to call it a success story because I like what you're saying that it's hard to have actual success measures, but maybe somebody who came into the organization like totally unaffiliated and just took it to like amazing lengths. You can't even believe how far they went with this. Yeah, so thank God there's many, many, many alumni who are connected to Judaism and are observant Jews on many, many different levels. I mean, we have people who are just, you know, barely Shomer Shabbos to people who are, you know, studying still in, in Israel. And we're not looking to sort of push people to go into Kolo for the rest of their lives. Even at the highest level of success of students who are really becoming more observant, that's not really what we're looking for. We want people who are productive, self-sufficient members of society. If they choose to go into the rabbinate or, or to Kolo, 
that's great. You know, normally for most people, we're hoping that even if they choose to become observant, we want them to integrate back into society, be a professional or have some sort of good means of parnasa and really raise a, a great family and be great parents. So I'll give you an example of someone who, you know, sort of epitomizes that. I have a student who, uh, you know, grew up very secular. He was dating a woman who was not uh, Jewish at all. And this girl was, um, her, her grandfather didn't want her to date a Jew, but my student's parents didn't care if, if he dated a non-Jew. And it was, it was a challenge. And eventually they broke up and he, he got involved and he started learning more and coming for Shabbos. And he was a very, very deep person, a very thought, thoughtful person. He actually joined Army ROTC. Uh, which is, you know, he basically means he gets free college tuition for joining the army after he graduates. And so he joined this ROTC. He was a grade A student and he was considered the number one recruit of the ROTC. And he was also like a mentor to a lot of the other students. By sophomore year, he's very involved in what we're doing. He's coming on Israel trips. He's asking questions. He's constantly coming for Shabbos. He's getting his friends involved. And so he basically has to make a decision. Is he going to stay in Army ROTC or is he going to leave because he knows that he wants to go to yeshiva at some point? Well, the problem is if he decides to go to yeshiva, he's got to give all that money back, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of tuition. You were assuming lots and lots of debt each semester. And he had to make that decision, and he and he was willing to make, with unbelievable serious effort, self-sacrifice, a decision to give back all that money and assume all that debt for college because he didn't want to be beholden to the Army ROTC. So he drops out against what his uh, Army commanders tell him, and he's asking them, you know, maybe I'll go to yeshiva and I'll become a chaplain and, and do that in the Army because I have, I know a number of Orthodox chaplains, and they said no, we're not going to. That's not a pathway that we can allow you to do. And so he drops out of ROTC and he joins the. Uh, and, and he stays, uh, you know, in, in Rutgers, but as our student president, we call him, you know, president for life. And he assumes lots of student debt, which was a tremendous act of mysterious message of self-sacrifice. He's impacting people in a tremendous way. He's getting his friends involved. We went on a trip to Poland, which those po Poland trips are unbelievable. Everybody's got to go to Poland once with the right tour guide. But uh, we, we, I've gone seven times. The first time we went, I remember distinctly going to all these places where, like, we're on fire spiritually, but we're exhausted by the time Shabbos comes. And we're in Krakow. We're in the Temple Synagogue in Krakow. It's Friday night. There's four buses of us. There's 120 more, more Poland students. It's the most unbelievable experience of our lives. But we're, like, so worn out emotionally, physically. And he, my, my, you know, the, the, the student that I'm talking about, Aaron, he's not having any of it. We're, we're not, we're not going to sit around over here on, on a Friday night in Poland. So by the time we're like, to, you know, we're up to like the second or third, uh, to hell him and, you know, in the beginning of, of, of the Hunaranana, he's like jumping up and down before, you know, it, there's 120 kids jumping, dancing, singing. Like if you ever been to the Kotel on Friday night with all the soldiers and the Hasidim and the yeshiva students and tourists, that's what it looks looks like. And the, the place hasn't looked like, you know, singing and dancing and crack like that probably in a hundred years since the Babur Hasidim were there. And it was unbelievable. And this kid is really the, the catalyst for that. And uh, what ends up happening is he goes to Yeshiv, he goes to Mahon Yaakov, and he has a tremendous impact not only on, on his own growth, but all these other students. And out of the nine kids who stayed for second year in Mahon Yaakov and graduate, five of them point to him as a major, major influence. He became a, a nurse, but not just a nurse, sort of like a psychiatric nurse. And he's using Jewish wisdom. He's not teaching them Torah, but he's using Hasidus and Jewish wisdom, Rabbi Nachman and Baal Shem Tov and all these ideas to sort of uplift 
these people, and he's having a tremendous impact on the world. And not only that, he marries this amazing woman who now is running our women's division. So here's a person who did with, through a tremendous act of mysterious nefesh, really went to tremendous heights. So he's he's really a, a big nafes for us. So when you have a kid like this who gets really into it, do you get involved with the families? And, and the reason I'm asking is because in my own journey, and I found it surprising, as I started becoming more religious, my parents weren't as enthusiastic as I assumed they would be. See, I thought, I'm just exploring Judaism on a deeper level. They're Jewish. I'm Jewish. What's the big deal? And I found out that as I've gotten into interviewing more people, that sometimes parents view it as some kind of indictment on the way that they raise their kid. Like, why isn't the Judaism I gave you enough? And why are you going so far down this path? Or is it a cult? Or like all these questions. So are you having those interactions with families when you have kids who really get turned on by and start adopting some of the things they're learning? Yeah, you definitely have to try to engage the family if you can. The family's not always willing to, to, to speak to the rabbi or the, or the person who's the uh, makarov. So that's a challenge. But, you know, it, it is very important to speak to the family. Sometimes it's important to slow the kid down. And another thing is you have to coach the student in terms of how to deal with the family. It's crucially important that there's no disrespect, that there's no sense of the child telling the parent, it's like, oh, you you did me wrong by not giving me these, you know, these ideas or this background. Because in 99% of the situations, the parents don't have any background either. So how are they supposed to know what to teach their child, you know, Jewishly? So it's critically important to emphasize that there has to be a very strong keyword of aim honoring parents, no matter what their religious uh, observance level is. And uh, there has to be a, a respect for the family. And the greatest way that children are becoming more observing and get their parents on their side is to go out of their way to be more respectful, more engaged, and more sensitive to the parents and the rest of the family, and not less so. God, and I've also seen in interviewing other folks who work in outreach that they tell me how much the smartphone has changed the world of Kirov. So you're someone who was starting out in 2004. You've been on this nearly 20-year journey. How has technology changed the way that you first find kids, get involved with them, and how they grow over time? So definitely smartphones are a great cause of distraction. First of all, it's a distraction for us, you know, as much as for the student, because, you know, we're always pulled in so many different directions. But certainly we try to tell the students, you know, put away your phone before class and it doesn't always work. So it's something which you have to sort of be conscious of. Sometimes it helps, though, because like you don't have to lug around text. You could go to Safari and and learn a text right there with the student. But definitely it is a distraction. It's difficult to pin people down because of it. But, you know, it's like anything else in the world. God gives us challenges and we just got to overcome. And the other area I just wanted to ask you about, you read so much about anti-Semitism going on on college campuses. So I'm, I'm curious what you're seeing at Rutgers just in general and also anything specifically towards you or your organization. So we don't see anything in Rutgers in a big way. There have been some incidents between the AUPI fraternity and students for the justice of Palestine. So there have been a couple of incidents which are anti-Semitic, which have occurred. Nothing to me, really. I mean, occasionally people will make nasty comments or something like that. But, you know, very rarely, you know, when you grow up as an identifiable Jew, it's not a big deal to be the target of mild anti-Semitism. I remember as a child, I mean, I remember I used to have pennies thrown at me or people would, you know, scream dirty Jew from the car. It's something which you sort of, you know, grow up with. My kids, you know, in Lakewood, where I live, in the yeshiva they go to, it's right near the border of Jackson. Probably, I don't know, uh, once a month they get something screamed at them. That's just part of life. For the students who are not identifiably Jewish, it's different because they get thrown off much more by that. I do have to say, though, that it's almost, I don't want to say better, because you don't want to celebrate or encourage anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism seems to motivate students to care more about Judaism. So it could be used as a positive. 
Yeah, I actually saw that with my niece who was secular. And it was only when someone on her campus like started using insults and things like that, that she suddenly like got turned on by Judaism to kind of feel like she was defending the religion and had to be a spokesperson for it. So I can understand what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. There's a great guy who's a volunteer with our organization. His name is Brian Silvey. He has a tremendous, unbelievable story with uh, anti-Semite throwing a mezuzah into a fire and how that sparked his whole return to Judaism. Wow. And so you, you told me in 2004 you were nine students strong. Do you have any sense of how many students you've impacted in the nearly 20-year journey you've been on? Yeah, so we, we grew exponentially. I, I took on a, a partner at the time. His name was Rabbi Oshua Lewis and his wife, Esther. And they were with us from 2005 to 2015, after which they started Mistoro, New Jersey, which works with a lot of young professionals. And uh, we've had a lot of great rabbis and rabbitsons come through. Right now, I work with Rabbi Aaron Grossman, who joined us in 2010. And uh, we have a lot of people on staff. And so we've impacted probably thousands of people. I would say in, in my phone contacts of alumni that I have had like some level of connection to, it's over a thousand, you know, so, but at various levels and various degrees, I can't say I'm in touch with all of them, certainly not, but it, you know, we ha we've impacted and thank God we were close to a lot of different students and we expanded to Columbia and we are connected to or NYU. We sort of helped manage and run that and raise some money for that. Although it's an independent campus, you know, we helped staff that and, and really be involved with that. And we have a connection to something called JBeats, which is Olami, New Jersey, which is run by Rabbi Johnny Kirsch. We also help him out and help manage the campus and and increase staff and help him with the funding as well. So we're expanding in a lot of different directions. So speaking of expansion, that tells me that you have some goals that you have planned over the next three to five years. So where would you like to see your organization go over the next half decade? Well, we're really hoping to expand to a lot of the campuses that are not being uh, serviced right now. Aish for a while was on eight or nine different college campuses. They generally, they right now it seems like they pulled off a lot of the campuses, and we want to fill those up. We have our eyes on a, on a bunch of different campuses, both in the Northeast and along the Eastern Seaboard. One campus in in the South, and we want to double our impact. You know, over the next you know three to five years, obviously we need to be able to raise the money to do that. And um, Olami is you know. Our our, our grandparent program has been a great partner with that, and our parent program has been another great partner. And we, we hope to just keep growing uh, in terms of our impact, you know, both in echas and kamas, in breadth and depth. As someone who's interacting so much with secular Jews, one of the things I've discovered is that when you get into this world, it can be a little bit more insulated, and all of your friends become people who are orthodox like you. Do you have advice for other people maybe living more of an insulated life about how they can connect with secular Jews to have us all realize we're just one religion together? So if for young people, there are different initiatives that are, that are occurring now that are trying to connect people to Chavrusa. So we're trying to create a, a women's cure database where young women in their 20s and 30s could volunteer to learn and get involved on campus and over the phone and over Zoom to be able to learn with secular Jewish women who are perhaps interested in growing. And we're now trying to connect with people in different yeshivas who are, who are interested in perhaps learning and reaching out with young college students and young Jewish professionals and connecting them with different opportunities of volunteering and learning. So those are two initiatives that I'm involved with through Olami that we're trying to do right now as we speak. 
And in general, you know, if you run into people, you know, you can try to connect and reach out to them and see if they want to learn on the phone or over Zoom or in person or invite people for a Shabbos. And there's other great organizations that you can volunteer for and you could start, you know, being a Chavrusa, whether it be Partners in Torah, Ura, NCSY. There's a lot of different ways where if you want to reach out and you want to be a connection to a person, you can do so. And it doesn't only have to be a secular person. There's a lot of people in the Orthodox world who are struggling, who could really use a lot of help. And it doesn't only have to be in Jewish learning. Sometimes it's just to be a listening ear, to be a friend, to be a mentor. So you could have a person who grew up Orthodox, but they're just struggling. They're not vibing with it. And if you could be that listening ear and you could be that person where they go to for a Shabbos meal and make a really enjoyable Shabbos meal and you connect, that's another way of reconnecting them to the Jewish people as well. So before we close the interview with our lightning round, I just wanted to ask you, if you have a student who just started at Rutgers this fall or one of the other colleges where you have programs, what's the best way for them to make that first point of contact with you and get involved? So they can go to our website, RutgersJX.com, where they could call me, or they could email me, mgoldbergandmoor.org, or they can call me, 908-596-1179, and um, just be in touch. And I'm happy to sit down with them for 15, 20 minutes and just kind of give them a rundown of what we do and see what they're all about and see if we can maybe put something together. So I have to warn you, you're the first guest who ever gave out their phone number in the middle of the interview. So let's see what happens from that. Good luck to you. Yeah, well, I, I'm getting spammed by some of the political parties now, so it seems like it's all over the place. But I'm pretty sure it's on it's on my website, so it's sort of uh, public knowledge. All right, so let's go to the lightning round. You ready for some super quick questions? Sure. Okay, so I couldn't help but notice your bio on your site actually says that your famous cholent is being experimented with by Elon Musk as an alternative energy source. So that tells me there must be something truly delicious about it. Is there a secret ingredient you want to share? Well, my challenge is amazing. First of all, you get you got to put in two or three pieces of garlic and let it sort of cook in the beginning. That'll give it that rich taste. Um, you have to put in the proper meat, right? Either flanken or something with bones and regular meat to give it a rich taste. You want to have good black pepper or perhaps cayenne pepper if you want a little, little bite to it. Smoked paprika is good, the one from Trader Joe's, but any type of paprika is good garlic powder, maybe an onion, and you put in a sweet potato. Now, you got to be careful about a sweet potato because most people don't think that that's like for, for grandmas. So you got to keep the sweet potato by itself because it, it gives off a little bit of the tang, and then eventually you mush it in once it's all uh, cooked. And if, if you cook it on a good temperature overnight, it tastes heavenly. Okay, second question. Let's say you have someone who's listening to this interview, but they're not at one of the colleges that, that you have programs, but something about this conversation is telling them, you know what? Right now, I'm completely unaffiliated, but I want to take a first step. I just don't know what that would be. What advice would you give to someone who's thinking, I want to get involved on some level? So there's a, a bunch of different opportunities for students of, in any location all over the world for trips, for internships, for learning opportunities, for social connections, for the Jewish community. So if you jump onto olami.org or you just call the number that I mentioned or, or email me, I'll connect you with a rabbi or anybody all over the world or a Rebetzin or some sort of community. You can go for a Shabbos meal on Shabbat.com pretty much almost anywhere in the world. There's so many opportunities and ways to get connected through almost every single medium that's out there. You just need to be able to identify the right place to to do it. So get in touch with me or, or go to olami.org and they have like a listing of like a ton of different places where you can get involved. Okay, last question. You talked earlier in the interview about a book that particularly inspired you. So if we have an unaffiliated secular Jew who's listening to the interview and says, what's a book or two that I should think about reading that could help me explore Judaism on a deeper level? Do you have any suggestions? 
so it really depends what the person is looking for. Like, what do you vibe with? So like, if you're a person who wants to know about spirituality and, you know, God and mysticism, so you probably want to read a book by Rabbi David Aaron. But if you're someone who's very, very much rigorous and philosophical, so you might want to read a book by, you know, Rabbi Jeremy Kagan or a number of different books that sort of try to demonstrate scientifically the existence of God. You know, there's great books for Jewish practice by Rabbi Mordechai Becher, B-E-C-H-E-R, Rabbi Mordechai Becher. So there's a bunch of different opportunities. I would suggest to people, if you really want to just get a good first knowledge of Judaism, open up a stone edition of the Chumash of the Torah, of the five books of Moses. The stone edition is the art scroll version. Just read the Torah, read it slowly, carefully, think about the questions, and look at the commentary on the bottom. You'll get a very good basic knowledge of what's going on, and then from there, you're ready for a deeper dive. And Rabbi Mayor Goldberg, I want to tell you, you are out of the lightning round, and thank you so much for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. I have a great, this is an amazing interview. Really appreciate it. And um, much success to you and to the entire podcast. And good luck with all the phone calls you're going to get from giving out your number. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready for them to come. <laughs> Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.